Christianity is for the life of the world. The work of God in Christ on his cross and in his resurrection is for all the world. It's not just for individuals to fly up and go to heaven, but it's for whole societies. It's for the creation itself. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God was beginning to make all things new, to make all sad things come untrue. This started with Jesus' resurrection, and the work continues, friends, it continues as we join the work of God, sowing seeds of resurrection, that the Father will, over the course of time, in His plan, bring about life for the world. This happens, these seeds are sown through our vocations. Um, whether we're in ministry or we're not in ministry, we're all in ministry. We're all doing the work, good work of God. It happens through our family, our love, as we give ourselves for, for our spouses, our family members, and then as our family begins to give itself in love to our neighbors. It happens through beauty and through justice and through wisdom and knowledge. And it happens through the church as well. Church is part of God's good work of making all sad things come untrue. Church is for the life of the world. It's not just for, for individuals to experience God in different ways and to be made right with God and for their souls to be made squeaky clean and so that they can get into heaven. Church is for the life of the world. Church is for creation itself. Church is for the good of society. Um... And I think that's probably our hardest subject in this sermon series. It's our final subject and it's our last subject. But I think for many of us, when we hear the phrase, church is for the life of the world, we've got problems with that. Some of us have stories. As I was considering how church was for the life of the world, I've thought of different stories that have come my way in people I'm close with, family members, friends, people I encounter in Chicago, of how the church has let them down how the church has hurt them, and how the church perhaps um, not only was it hold off from the world, which sometimes it was, but then it was actually like doing destructive things in people's lives, leaving damage and carnage, leaving people frustrated, leaving people left out. Maybe it's because someone's experienced the church just trying to survive, or being tribal, um, or being nationalistic, more for the insiders than for the outsiders, failure to communicate with people who are not initiated, or maybe it's church leaders, ministry leaders that have kind of abused their power, kind of left a trail of, of bodies behind them, people who say, I'll never trust the church again. Maybe it's that. Maybe you've got a rebuke in your heart for the church. Maybe the church has caused you pain. I think we're in a moment culturally where people are kind of ready to, to hear that rebuke. Ready to hear you out. Stories are being told around the campfire about how the church has hurt them. The floor is open, as it were. So it's interesting. We're living in a time when people have kind of a lot of skepticism about the church. But I think also we, we have really high expectations for the church too. We've got, some, we've got some baggage, but we also have kind of high expectations that the church should be sort of just so. Calibrated in a way that actually really does meet my needs. And I think we, we are personally invested in seeing many of us 
who have a history with the church, we want it to do well. We want it to thrive. We want it to be alive. But we're like, you know, if you would only get it right, these few things, I would feel better, be more fulfilled, and the church would, be, would thrive better as well. And so I think personally we want, we want church and its different expressions to minister to us. And we want to see it thrive. We want to do, see it do well. We want it led well. Maybe you have a rebuke to bring to the church, but maybe you have a request to bring to the church. Neither are wrong in themselves. I've got both too. Whether we have a rebuke, whether we have a request, whether our expectations are high or we've got stories of pain, we might just put all of our hope in people and completely miss God. (laughs) God is the one who brings life to the church. God is the one that allows the church to bring life to the world. We are so tempted to miss that and to go, no, the special person or this friend or this leader or this person, if they would only fix things, if only they would pay attention to me, if only I would get recognized, if only, uh, if only I would be, just be able to connect, be encouraged, be ministered to by this person or that person, then the church would be thriving. No, that's not how it works at all. It's God that brings life to the church. It's God that allows the church to bring life to the world. And we might miss God at church. We might miss God because we're too busy looking at ourselves and looking at each other. We might miss the living God. That puts tremendous pressure on us as the people of God to conjure God's power by getting it right, by getting it perfect, by getting it just so, by creating ourselves to be a good enough community. (laughs) Tremendous pressure. We can't bear that pressure. You can't bear that pressure. Neither can I. We are not the animating force of the body of Christ. We're not. We have gazed too long and too longingly at people and their capacities, and we need to get a vision of God again. If we will be a church for the life of the world, we need that vision. We need to see God as he was. We need to see God as he is. We need to see God as he will be. We need to unburden ourselves for a while, just a second for, from our, either our criticisms or our rave reviews of church and look up and see God. Unburdened from our expectations We can look up at the majestic mountain that is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And unburdened of our expectations, we can ascend that mountain and meet the living God and receive power from the living God to be the church. On this Trinity Sunday, I want all of us to receive a vision from from John the Revelator. John the Revelator was an enemy of the state. He was a he was in prison from the Roman Empire and he was cut off. He was cut off from the sweet fellowship of the church. Of all the people that were following Jesus after the resurrection, he had followed Jesus himself and he was cut off from the body of Christ, pulled off into a prison and it was there that he saw a vision of the living God that has actually fed the church for thousands of years. It was a vision of the what, uh, what, how things were how things are and how things will be. It was a vision um, of God being God. God the victor. God the lover. 
God, the author of history. We need this vision to be the church. I want to share with you how the glory of God is the life of the church as we look at John's vision and turn our gaze upward today. Number one, God has brought heaven to earth by kicking hell out of it. God has brought heaven to earth by kicking hell out of it in every form. Read with me this vision in Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. All right, let's start with, with this troubling language of prostitute and judgment, okay? Maybe you felt uncomfortable hearing that, reading that. Um, judging the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and then, and then he avenges on the prostitute. Um, so does that sound like oppressive language to you? In many cases, the sex workers of our city in Chicago need stability, they need love, they need the protection of the law, they don't need blame, right? And many of you, in, in, as a, either as a volunteer or your full-time vocation, is caring for sex workers in Chicago or maybe elsewhere. And I want you to know your vocation is so important and so good. Don't blame the victim, of course not. Give them protection of the law, give them justice. Um, th- this, that would be the work of the church, okay? So I think it's really important to know that, the, that the, when Revelation refers to the great prostitute, it's shorthand for the power of hell that has united itself with the earth. Hell wants to, it just in as much as heaven wants to be united with the earth, hell does too. And when heaven unites itself with earth, it's called Jerusalem in Revelation. When hell unites itself with earth, it's called Babylon or the great prostitute. It's the power of hell attaching like a leech to everything that's good, everything that's beautiful, and, and, and corrupting it and taking the good out and turning it into hell. Babylon is shorthand for the systems of oppression that exist in our world today. The, the billions of dollars, billions of dollars that are made when children are taken from their parents and put in brothels for sex tourists to make money off of. That is part of Babylon. Unjust rulers that won't step down are part of Babylon. Um, murder that happens and is quietly, money is used to, to hide it. That's part of Babylon. That's hell uniting itself with earth. That's hell uniting itself with life and beauty and goodness and taking that beauty and goodness out. That's Babylon. And that is what Jesus is coming to kick out. Kicking hell out of earth so that he can heavenize it. Racism, murder, humans enslaving humans, corruption, separation, every kind of horror imaginable. But you know what's interesting about Jesus? You remember his teaching, some of you, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when he's like, you, you know, 
You think adultery is bad. Lust is just as corrupt. You think murder is bad. Hate is just as corrupt. You hate your brother. Jesus knows how deep hell goes. We're breathing hell into the world every day of our life. Through gossip, through silent bitterness, through lustful glances, through tiny injustices and tiny bits of corruption. Hell's everywhere. Hell's in here. Hell's out there. Jesus knows how deep the problem goes. He's actually more serious than we are about removing hell from earth. He's more serious. He'll go down all the way to the root. Yeah, he'll take care of the branches too. He'll take down the rulers. He'll take down the corruption. He'll take down the systems. And he'll also remove hell from our own souls. And he'll put it out where finally it can't attach to anything anymore. And this burning that goes up forever, that's a symbol that hell is outside the gate, successfully outside of earth. It's put to the side, and its murder and its lust and its corruption falls in on itself and can no longer spread its tentacles. Its tentacles come on itself, and the doors are locked from the inside. Jesus keeps it out because he's good. This is so good to know about God, that that's what he wants for our world. He's a regulator. He brings order. He brings justice. That's why the choir's singing about it. Have you ever experienced a time when you're in a bad situation and someone with authority comes in and makes it right? I mean, even little things. I was in the library the other day, and um, it, this is, this is may, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, the other day. <laughs> it was a day. Um, so, just being honest. Um, but seriously, I was in the library, and um, it was in the quiet section of the library. And you know what happens in the quiet section of the library? People forget it's the quiet section of the library. And so someone was, they were like talking on the phone, again, you know what I mean? They were making noise. And someone had the gumption to say, this is the quiet section of the library. <laughs> Stop talking. And you know what? That person shut up. And you know what we did? We were like, hallelujah! Someone regulated around here. Someone brought order and rightness to the library. Finally, we can all get our work done. It's set right. That's what's so good about the king, is he set things right. He knows exactly how to come to earth and kick hell out of it. He knows exactly how to come to earth and bring heaven to it. He knows how to heavenize your soul, and he knows how to heavenize your workplace and your city and your family. Though we have breathed hell into it, he can kick hell out of it and he can bring heaven and bring justice. And that is so good. There's a multitude at the beginning that sings of this, a great choir. In verse 1, what seemed to be a, 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 the loud voice, so it's singular, there's a voice, but it's a great multitude. There's lots of people saying the same thing. They're singing hallelujah, glory, and Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Who makes up this choir? It's the saints. It's your spiritual mothers and fathers that have gone before you. It's the people who, it's the, it's the 20 martyrs that, that gave their lives on the beach. It's the countless throngs of faithful people who were the church in their day. 
and they are looking up to the living God. And that's where their joy is coming from. They're not saying, hey, look at us. Look at what God is doing. We're a countless throng. <laughs> okay? Look what God, what God is doing. We're so clean. No, they're looking up at God. And that's where their joy comes from. They're like, look, it's a deliverer. He did something we couldn't do. He made something bad into something amazing. He's restored creation. And they're worshiping him. So, number one, God has brought heaven to earth by kicking hell out of it. Number two, second thing we need to know as the church, the glory of God satisfies and humbles every living creature who would dare get close to it. The glory of God satisfies and humbles every living creature that would dare get close to it. Read with me in verse 4. Read along with me in verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, we'll talk about that voice in a minute, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. In these verses, we see the throne of God draw in creatures great and small, like a magnet. They circle around the throne. They get close to the throne. They can't stop speaking of God. They surround God. Exclamations are loud. And earnest like mighty peals of thunder, like a roar of, mighty, of many waters. Creatures surround God and encircle God. They fall down around God in humble worship. And then they overflow with praise. They remind all of heaven and earth that he reigns. The Lord God is satisfying them. The Lord God is humbling them. And I love verse 5 so much. There's the voice that comes from the throne but that's really interesting because all the elders and all the creatures and all the other characters are not, they're surrounding the throne. They're not, they're not in the throne. This voice is coming from the throne. What's this voice? It's a word that's with God. It's a humble voice. It's nameless. It's, it's a word that points to the Father coming from the Father. This is the victor speaking, friends. Yeah, he's the victor, but he's so humble. All Lord Jesus is humble. That's why he humbles us when we become like him. And he's pointing to the Father, calling us to praise him. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. What love to be included in that circle. To be called by Jesus himself to join the word of the great multitude of hallelujah. He calls all servants. Some are small, some are great. Some live short and quiet lives. Others long and august lives. Jesus tells them to bow, to bow before the Father, to take your place of reverence, and they take their place of reverence. 
In verse 6, the voice of the great multitude roared and thundered and cried out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's a multitude deeply satisfied and humbled by the glory of God. This is what we do when we're satisfied. We cry out. We can't help it. Saints, friends, I want you to be satisfied. I do. I really do. I want you to be satisfied. I know you're hungry. I know your souls are hungry. Not just for food, but for meaning and purpose. I know you want to overflow. I know that you want more, more. There's a more cry from your soul. I know there's a cry. And I want you to know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is the perfect answer to that more. I know you want more. And He's ready to give it to you. Friends, He's ready to humble and satisfy all of us. He's better than entertainment. He is. Entertainment's good, but He's better. He's better than really good food. I love great food. He's better. He's better than romance. He's better than the best romance you could ever be a part of. Romance is good. He's better. He's better. He's more fulfilling. He's more satisfying. Career success, career growth, that's great. Work hard, please. But I want you to know it won't satisfy your soul like he can. Dwelling in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, separately. Pressing into his glory. Looking on him. Taking, your eyes off our, uh, taking our eyes off ourselves. That's satisfying. It's more satisfying. Please hear me. Please hear me because I care about you. I love you. Take your, take your more, take your soul around the throne room and look at the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on this Trinity Sunday. He will satisfy you. Nothing else can bear the weight of our request. Nothing else is as heavy. Nothing else is as glorious as Him. So think of Him. Call out to Him. Cast your cares on Him. It will be a delight for your heart, mind, and soul. Praise our God, all you His servants. You who fear him, great and small. But speaking of romance, number three. God is planning a wedding to end all weddings, and you're invited. God is planning a wedding to end all weddings, and you're invited. I want you to think of the best love story you've ever heard. The best love story you've ever heard. And I want you to think of the most joyful wedding you've ever been to. Or maybe your wedding's coming up and you're thinking about it. You want it to be joyful. Think of the best wedding you've ever been to. Think of the best romance, fictional or not, uh, uh, nonfiction, that you've ever heard. I want you to know that this love story and this wedding blows them all out of the water. And what's, what's, what's better is that it's true. It's actually true. It's actually part of history. It, it, it was, and it is, and it's coming. And you're invited. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with a fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let me tell you about this story. 
In this story, the bride was a slave. She was a slave. She was in an abusive relationship. She was addicted and beaten and alone and never imagined a wedding day. And the groom gave his body to be tortured and executed to win her over. And after he died, he punched a hole through death and climbed through the hole and scooped up his bride so he could marry her. And then he sings over her. And he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. I've, with my gracious hands, removed the flaws. With my strong arm, I've kicked hell out. And I've redeemed you, and I've given you the most beautiful wedding dress you could ever imagine. And she's wearing that wedding dress, and all sad things have come untrue. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What's the fine linen, you ask? It's the righteous deeds of the saints. And it was given to her to clothe herself with the righteous deeds of the saints. What are the righteous deeds of the saints? That's what the bride does out of love for the groom. Not to earn his love. It was granted her to wear the dress. She wears the dress, though. Through countless, mundane, unseen, unheralded, tender acts of costly love for the life of the world. Sowing seeds in exile. Sowing seeds for the life of the world. Giving of life and love and work and labor and prayer. When you go out to work tomorrow in the power of the resurrection and you operate as a financial analyst, you are wearing the wedding dress. When you sit down with someone who's addicted or perhaps someone who is uh, sexually exploited and you help bring healing to their life, you're wearing the wedding dress. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. When you go out on the beat tomorrow, and operate as a minister of the law, a cop, and you do so with justice and love, and you give your heart and mind and soul to your neighborhood, you're wearing the wedding dress. When you conspire as a bunch of small groups to yet again throw a party for our neighbors in Uptown, you're wearing the wedding dress. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. When you spend hour upon hour parenting your child in tenderness and love and confessing your sin to them and to God, You're wearing the wedding dress. When you come here early to volunteer to set up these beautiful things and transform this kiva into a worship center, you're wearing the wedding dress. We wear it in love. We don't wear it to earn the groom. We wear it as a sign, as a passionate symbol of of our love for him. We wear it in Babylon. We stand in Babylon with the wedding dress on. And in doing so, we are a symbol of hope. We're an outpost of hope that a wedding's coming. There's a wedding coming. Hell might not be completely eradicated. There may be things that totally depress us. There may be things that we cannot eradicate ourselves. But we stand in Babylon. We wear the wedding dress. And it's the hope of the world. 
That bride wearing the wedding dress is the hope of the world. Because everyone can see that, what's, why is she wearing a wedding dress? There's a wedding feast coming. And she's going to get married to someone who has won the victory and who loves her. She wears it in love. She wears it for hope. She's a sign that he's coming. She's a sign that he's coming. And that is what the church is. We're a a living sign, both organism and institution, that the Lord Jesus is coming to remove hell and heavenize this city that we love, this neighborhood that we love, our families that we love. He's coming to heavenize it. We're the symbol that that's happening, that that's coming true. And we're the hope of the world. We need to gather to remember that hope. We need to gather to remember that a wedding dress exists. But we also need to scatter. We need to scatter throughout our neighborhoods in the cities. We need to wear the wedding dress outside of this church for the life of the world, to sow seeds in all kinds of ways. And yes, to be able to speak of him. Yes, to be able to share the hope that we have. You are commissioned to actually breathe hope into the world. Not a empty hope. The hope of history. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will unite himself with earth. And the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Let me pray for you. Lord, we offer up to you all that we cannot handle. We can't handle the cry of our souls to be satisfied. We can't handle that. We need you to handle it. We also, Lord, cannot handle the mandate of being the church in our own power. We need you to revive that mantle and to give that back to us. Lord, we cannot handle all the systems of hell. We need you to deliver us. And Lord, we can't handle bringing life to the world. We need you to do it. We need you to give us the wedding dress. But let us wear it, Lord. Let us get to work in Chicago and in Uptown. Let us get to work as a church, sowing seeds that will bear fruit on that wedding day. Let us wear the dress. Let our church be a symbol of hope for the world. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.